It's May 12th, 2019, and this is episode 397 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hey. And Andreas Amantinopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts and to you, the listeners, for joining today's session. So as of this morning, it's been six years since we kicked off the Let's Talk Bitcoin show and just about a year exactly since we were all together on stage in Chicago. Wow, that was so much fun. It doesn't feel like a year ago, but um, people always say that. But that was really like a dream come true doing that six year anniversary show. I hope uh, many, many more and we have more chances to do shows like that in person. So if you want to get us to your conference, <laughs> just kidding. We don't really do it like that, do we? I have a secret plan. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> I like the secret plan. Anyway, guys, what do you think? It's been six years since we started talking about Bitcoin. A lot has changed, obviously, but uh, some things never change. And one of the things that we've been talking about from the very beginning of uh, this crazy journey is the idea of fungibility, which is a, a fun <laughs> word, isn't it? <laughs> Fungibility. It has fun right in it. <laughs> Whenever I hear this to me, it sounds sort of like it's like a fungal infection or something. <laughs> like Maybe this is my medical background talking, but like it feels like a fungus is like funging its way through your body and it's just infecting all of the cells. And it's like this mycelial network that's taking over your tissue. Maybe that's a little bit uh, a different picture than some people imagine in their heads. But what do you guys think of when you hear this word? I also like the sound of it very much. And fungibility is one of those words that has mouthfeel. You know how uh, people who are food critics say, mm, excellent mouthfeel. Well, fungibility <laughs> has that. And uh, yeah, fungal infection sounds exactly right. In fact, it's probably the only thing that can affect the fungibility of paper money. Oh, if paper money grows mushrooms on it, <laughs> gets moldy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, if you've got a moldy paper money, then you'd be like, mm, I'll give you uh, 75 cents on this dollar. <laughs> you know, funny enough, they must put some kind of mold resistant technology in paper money because I've never actually seen paper money get moldy. I've seen like paper wallets get moldy. And we've talked about that on the show. <laughs> before. <laughs> but don't they say that paper money is one of the least hygienic things there are? People take swabs of it and they grow all kinds of bacteria and fungi and parasites, right? Like from people's, who knows where it comes from? I don't even want to say, but they say paper money is so extremely dirty. And then every dollar bill has traces of drugs on it and cocaine and everything. And uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering why they don't get moldy more often and wondering what their secret is. They destroy them. I think that's the real secret. Well, first of all, it's not paper, it's cotton. So we call it paper money, but it's actually a special blend of cotton. But I think they just remove it from circulation, shred it up and burn it uh, much more often than people anticipate. Can it be uh, eaten by moths if it's cotton? I've never seen moth-eaten money. Oh, possibly. That's an interesting one. That would be what, inflation? No, deflation? I think the moths are just disgusted by <laughs> the, the, the viral and bacterial load of the cotton to even try eating it. They're like, ew, money. This is not good food source. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. So as you listeners have probably figured out, today we'll be kicking off with a topic that we didn't have time for on the last episode, which is the past, president, and future of Bitcoin fungibility. 
At least in theory, fungibility is one of the greatest advancements offered by Bitcoin. With gold or paper dollars, with wheat or really anything else, in order to know that something is what it says it is, it has to be manually inspected. That could be weighing a gold coin or even testing its chemical composition to make sure that it has the gold content claimed. Holding up a $100 bill to a light to check the security measures, testing samples from that silo of grain. But the point is broadly that you need to make sure that the thing that you're getting is actually the thing that you think that you're getting. With Bitcoin, verification is automatic. Your Bitcoin wallet recognizes only valid Bitcoin, which makes that kind of fraud pretty hard as your wallet won't be fooled or even really notice that you've gotten a fake Bitcoin. In some ways, this makes Bitcoin one of the most fungible things ever because there's virtually no concern about counterfeit and therefore no reason to worry about verification outside of a few Bitcoin network confirmations. Anything that your wallet calls a Bitcoin really is a Bitcoin. But wait a minute, Adam, we never defined fungibility. What is it? (laughs) We talked about the word a lot, but what does it actually mean? It means one thing is exchangeable for another thing of the same type? I think a a better definition would be to think of each one of the units not only being indistinguishable, but also of equal value to every other unit. The big concern about fungibility is that you start having varying prices for the thing that is supposed to be the unit of account. Meaning that if a dollar or a gold coin is less pure than another gold coin or a dollar has some problem with it, perhaps its provenance or association with a crime makes it essentially less valuable than another dollar. If you start discounting units and say, ah, this dollar, I don't really like it. Let me let me give you 80 cents for it. Or this gold coin is worth less than an ounce because it's not actually pure gold. Or this Bitcoin has been involved in some shady stuff, and therefore I'm going to give you less than face value. This Bitcoin has a dark past. (laughs) (laughs) A dark past. Someone used this Bitcoin, rolled it up, and used it to snore cocaine, so it has traces of cocaine on it. Oh, wait, no, you can only do that with dollars. (laughs) And, you know, the thing is, fungibility, the real practical problem of fungibility is breaking the unit of account aspect. Because if you start having different prices, if you effectively start discounting one unit versus another, then you can't use them for pricing. And then you can't also use them for medium of exchange effectively. Yeah, so it kind of breaks down some of the other characteristics of money. Now, I mean, this can happen not just because of the history of a coin, as we've seen, you know, we hear the example a lot of like coins that are on a white list of like, they've never been involved in anything sketchy, and then coins that have been involved in something sketchy, and exchanges are prohibited from even touching them or exchanging them. They have to boot off their customer who tries to sell those particular coins, sometimes even unbeknownst to the customer. And this is not just a theoretical example. This has actually been happening for quite a while. But I want to talk about another example, too, which is something like what happened with Mt. Gox or with some other exchanges or even with the the sort of crisis a few years ago in Bitcoin transaction fees, where the the fees were going up and the network was very congested of like how movable are the coins i guess that's not really fungibility that's more like liquidity but in certain cases we could see coins basically trade at a higher value if they're basically more able to be used right well it's the roach motel effect right they go in but they don't come out and then once they're in the premium on getting out right. becomes much greater Is that a Roach Motel? I thought that was Hotel California. Oh, well, maybe the same thing. You can enter, but you can never leave, (laughs) right? right? It's like Mt. Gox is like Hotel California. You can enter, but you can never leave. 
Right. I think that's true of roaches too, but I take your point. <laughs> right. Okay. So we've seen this happen, but it, is that actually fungibility or is that something else? I think that's more of a liquidity issue. So there you're discounting coins that are encumbered in some way because they're not transferable or because there's expectations about whether the coins actually exist and therefore everybody's in a rush to not be the last bag holder, right? I think that's more liquidity. So if we have an analogy of like there's a a car and a driver or something like that, fungibility means who is the driver and liquidity is like, is the car able to go? (laughs) Is that a terrible analogy? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Right. Um, Interestingly enough, fungibility is a legal concept that is something that protects traditional currencies, if you like, or fiat currencies, meaning that by law, and this goes back to, I believe, the 17th century, people are not allowed to discriminate between two units of currency. The case that uh, established this, I believe it's a common law case that goes back to Scotland, was where a shopkeeper received paper money that had been stolen from them in the past. And for some reason, they'd kept the serial number or something like that. They were able to recognize that it was one of the paper monies that had been stolen from them. And they therefore claimed that they weren't going to honor the transaction, but keep the money because it was originally theirs. It was stolen goods. And so that went to court and the court decided that, no, you can't do that. Money is one of the few things that cannot be stolen goods, meaning you you can't say, I won't take this money because it was previously stolen from someone. Once it re-enters circulation, it's the same as everything else. And that's enforced by law. You can't make blacklists. Yeah, you get into really tricky issues, right? Because that money could have passed through multiple different hands before it got to that customer who completely unknowingly tried to use it to pay for their groceries, right? And then it's like if you go back far enough, especially in America, like kind of everything is stolen property, right? Like the Native Americans had it first, right? (laughs) And the Europeans kind of took it from them. So if you go back far enough in the chain of custody, you could kind of make an argument that like everything is stolen in some ways. So where do you stop with that once you start? Well, but hang on, there actually is an exemption to that, you know, dollars are fungible, dollars have to be treated as money. What about the circumstance of uh, dollars that are stolen from a bank and then have indelible ink effectively exploded all over them? That makes them blue dollars, right? Versus black lists, which is what we're talking about. And I actually think that that's actually a much better and almost perhaps the correct way if you are going to break something like fungibility, because in marking the specific bills as they do with ink in that way, anybody who would take that cash can see very clearly that it has had its fungibility impugned because people don't just go around pouring this ink all over, you know, their normal dollars. It's reserved specifically for that purpose. And that's when the bank robber says to their partner, you blew it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, That's the thing. I mean, in that case, you're not talking about discounting one unit or another. In that case, effectively, what the die has done is remove those from circulation by rendering them void. Uh, And that's a very different thing than saying, I won't accept this in a transaction unless you discount it or private individuals making these kinds of uh, distinctions between one unit and another. Right. But I mean, if you receive counterfeit money, for example, you're kind of responsible for checking it. Like this makes me think of this story that you told, Andreas, 
this was way back like in our first year of doing the show. You were selling small amounts of Bitcoin on local Bitcoins just to get people introduced to the idea. And someone bought 100 or 200 bucks worth of Bitcoin from you and gave you counterfeit uh, Federal Reserve notes, which weren't actually... That's correct. Someone gave you... 20s. Counterfeit 20s, right. And you didn't realize that they were counterfeit and then you had to basically just eat that loss. Is that how that happened? Well, yes. And this was uh, in the days when I was naive. <laughs> and you found out later when you tried to buy something with it, didn't you? And someone tested it. Actually, it was it was even funny. They didn't test it. I tried to buy beer in a bar and I put the money down on the counter. And the counter was a tiny bit wet and the money melted because it was printed on paper instead of cotton. <laughs> and uh, but it was very high quality counterfeit. It was difficult to discern. So yeah, and I, I ate the loss, but I actually made up for the loss because what I did was I wrote an article about it that I got paid for, which was worth more than the value <laughs> of the money. Oh, that's a great way to turn it around. <laughs> yeah, I laminated the um, the counterfeits together with a real dollar and used it as a training aid. So I'd go to meetups and say, okay, spot the fake. And of course, three quarters of the money in the laminate were fake. And no one could figure it out or very, very few people could figure it out. And it was to help people understand how easy it is to fall for that kind of scam and how to be careful about these things. And I, I had a UV pen and sh demonstrated how you could fix that. Yeah, counterfeiting is a very big problem in every aspect of physical tokens and whether you get a gold bar. I mean, we've seen examples where even bars that are stamped and sealed and assayed by reputable gold dealers. I believe the example was Credit Suisse or UBS, one of the Swiss banks. And then they, they drill through them and find that they're tungsten. Oh, well, you're supposed to bite the gold coin to make sure it's real. And then you have no teeth left after a while. <laughs> yeah, just don't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, that was how people used to tell or try to spot a fake. And it's always like an arms race, right? Between the fakers and the people who are trying to discern the the reality of a uh, an asset. Yeah, and then nowadays it takes extreme technology like acids and gas uh, chromatographers or whatever they're called. Mm, gas chromatography. <laughs> yeah, so you basically, what do you do? You, you cause the um, the surface to sublimate and then you take a spectrum Im image of the of the gas so you can see if the if it really pings on the gold spectrum or if it pings on the tungsten spectrum and you're like whoops oh wow even if it's just a tungsten bar coated in gold maybe that still wouldn't catch it if you're just testing the outer layer exactly that's not enough so you you have to do all this. i mean effectively the only way to really do it is to melt it down and and check every molecule of it well that sounds costly <laughs> right Yes, exactly. And and that's one of the main arguments people make. In terms of forgeability, Bitcoin is, is incredibly resilient, but then it has this big, big blind spot, which is the provenance is very easy to check, which means that very quickly you run into situations where you start having people checking one hop, two hops, three hops, five hops. I think the industry standard is like six hops back, meaning six prior transactions to see if if at any point it touched one of the blacklisted coins that were related to a theft, or even perfectly legal activities which are undesirable to the banking institutions. So for example, gambling, and that can be anywhere in the world, or involved in buying marijuana, even in places where it's legal. I've heard, yeah, cannabis is one of the things, yeah. Yeah, 
Anything that's kind of threatening to the traditional banking industry, right? Anything that's new and scary. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that looks or sounds kind of sketch, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's a web of weird incentives. But in, in the case of fiat money, that kind of thing is specifically excluded by law. So I can't take a, you know, if somebody gives me a $100 bill to pay off a debt that they owe me or something like that, and I look at that $100 bill and I use a database to look up and track the serial number and I say, oh, I'm sorry, this $100 bill was was actually received in payments. The Saudis paid for General Dynamic White Phosphorus Napalm Bomb to drop in Yemen with this money, so I won't accept it because it's involved in a war crime you know, something actually substantial rather than cannabis, then I wouldn't be able to do that by law. Wow. But in the case of uh, crypto, that's a real problem. And at the moment, we're in a situation where in our industry, we're in an arms race. And that arms race is the exchanges check for six hops. So the privacy protecting wallets uh, take your coins through seven hops in order to protect their fungibility. And then the exchanges will do seven hops. And then the privacy wallets will do eight hops and the fees keep adding up. Wow. So that's very that's a very interesting contrast and dichotomy because on one hand, we have this fungibility advantage with Bitcoin, which is that the wallet software that we use automatically verifies that a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin and you really can't trick it. You're not you're not biting down on gold or testing anything, right? But then you have this problem of the traceability and the exchanges having these basically legal requirements kind of imposed upon them that are checking where has this coin been? Essentially, has it been in any dark places? <laughs> right. Provenance. So does it add together and kind of negate? Do they cancel each other out is I think what we're asking, right? Like, or was it different in the past, right? Like years ago when we first started doing this show, We didn't have yet, maybe they were just in their infancy, but we didn't have these companies that were data mining the blockchain and trying to associate different addresses with different real world identities and and so forth. And we didn't have these companies that were essentially building a map of all the transactions and who's using them and what are they using them for and really sticking their nose in the blockchain and figuring out, investigating it, right? Investigating what's going on. And so there wasn't that pressure, I guess, for tracing where a coin has been because there really wasn't a map of where have all the coins been. But now the map of where all the coins have been is much more advanced. The blockchain is forever, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And nothing has changed as far as the wallets verifying that a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. And so overall, I would say just based on that information, it seems like the status of Bitcoin fungibility now is worse than it's been in the past. Do you guys agree with that? Absolutely. I think MTGOX was the thing that started this. Because MTGOX created this massive loss and because this, or theft rather, was was involved in this massive theft, and this theft created a whole set of coins that could be tracked, it started the ball rolling for these fungibility protections. And of course, from a moral perspective, when you present it as, oh, this thief took the empty Gox coins and we need to stop this thief from benefiting from their crime, it sounds like a reasonable thing. And you're like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with blacklisting those coins. You know, fast forward six years and now you're like, one of your change addresses was involved in a gambling transaction, six transaction back. So we're now freezing your entire exchange account. 
and you're like, uh, that, that seems a bit, a bit less morally straightforward to me now. Right. Uh, <laughs> It's a classic slippery slope. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, it doesn't seem like we're at the point yet, although maybe we will get there eventually. For example, with dollars, you know, every dollar has traces of cocaine or so the urban legend goes, right? If every Bitcoin was at some point in the past associated or maybe six steps back into the past, it's like six, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon coin or something. Right? Mm, yeah, exactly. If every coin was associated with a so-called dirty transaction in the last six steps of its history, then there wouldn't be a problem because they couldn't discriminate anymore, right? Every coin is tainted. And how far away are we from that reality? Because it seems like that's exactly what goes on with cash. That's exactly what goes on with paper money. And eventually that's going to be the reality for cryptocurrency as well. But we're not there yet. And I think that's the really funny thing about this, is that if you look at these analytics companies and this attitude they have of tracking the provenance in order to ensure that you only have pristine, clean, legitimate coins. Pristine, clean, and legitimate are in scary double quotes in my expression. You know, we talked about this arms race, right? So it's six hops. So then you do seven hops in your wallet and you're good. Okay, eight hops. Because I can do as many transactions as I want with myself like just uh, sending to another address of mine, to another address of mine, to another address of mine, and creating distance. Some of those could even be more sophisticated, like coin join transactions or something like that. But even just the simple adding a few hops. Some wallets offer this as a service. Samurai Wallet calls it ricochet. Um, and what it does, it just bounces your coins around through a number of transactions. So by the time they get to your destination, this is an advisable policy and, and practice when you're sending money to an exchange, you should probably do this. Then by the time it gets there, it's it's more than six hops. Well, what if the exchanges start checking seven hops, eight hops, nine hops, 10 hops? So the more they increase the distance from the previous transaction, the more likely it is that all coins are tainted, especially when Bitcoin transactions have this fan out effect where you have one input and two outputs because one of them is change, which means that each transaction increases the number of UTXO that are tainted, usually doubling them. So you start with one and then you end up with two. If you keep that going and you do lots of transactions, eventually everything's tainted. And the further back you look, the more likely you are to end up in this everything's tainted. Right. And couldn't an exchange also just look at a pattern and say, okay, if there were six quick transactions in succession, man, you know, this is automatically a red flag or something like that. I was going to ask about that. Like the story that got us onto this topic today actually was that it involves an exchange that's not a huge exchange called Coin Mama that basically uh, emailed one of their users after he had used Bitcoin that he acquired in a, a gambling application like six hops later. And they had been able to, or at least had been willing to make the guess, you know, and tell him that they thought that it was him that was doing this and that that, that violates their terms of service. But again, like thinking about it, unless you're looking at that sort of like behavioral stuff where it's like, oh, well, these are seven transactions, you know, one right after the other, which implies that it's not like real people. It's just kind of moving it from one pocket to the other. Is that the level of complexity that they're doing? Or is there another way to be able to connect these dots more comprehensively? All of these concepts depend on an ability to deny the nature of Bitcoin and pretend it's not what it is. Right. And the nature of Bitcoin is that I can create a billion addresses and do as many transactions as I want for 
fairly low cost. And, and that's just on layer one, and we'll get to layer two next, because then the problem for the analytics firms becomes even greater. But given those parameters, this is basically a strategy that will only catch the idiots, right? right. And this is the classic problem with trying to enforce these ridiculous policies. Criminals will easily be able to circumvent them. They have the patience, they have the money, they have the technical expertise, or they can buy the technical expertise, they have the risk profile to say, okay, so what you're saying is I need to do six hops, but not one immediately after the other. I need to spread them out over what? A week? Is that good enough? Okay, great. Not a week, two weeks? Keep moving the goalposts, people. We can keep keep up. No problem. And you know, think about it from a different perspective. What transaction looks like it's had six consecutive transactions, one after another, and it's perfectly normal? The exchanges themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> The exchanges do all of this stuff where they aggregate into cold storage and out of cold storage every single day. And so withdrawals and deposits exhibit the very pattern that the exchange is looking for for tainted coins. It creates this completely untenable situation where the only people you end up catching are the naive and mostly innocent users who were not trying to evade anything, but just got handed a coin they didn't know was tainted and then end up in your in your trap. Right. Yeah, they received a hot potato and they didn't even know it. <laughs> well, that's what I was saying about the ink, right? Is that with the ink, you can see, right? It's like, oh no, I'll choose not to take that dollar bill because that dollar bill is covered in blue ink. But there's no such visibility to this sort of problem when you're talking about Bitcoin. This seems like something you find out about unwittingly, right? Like it's not like an exchange right. tells you the rules up front and says, okay, you can't try to sell any coins here that have been involved in a gambling transaction, cannabis. Well, they do tell you that in the terms of conditions, but what they don't tell you is how many hops do they look back and and what does it mean used? Right, and and it seems like no one really reads that, especially like the newbie user who's just confused enough trying to set up an account. This is the kind of problem that in the long run can become a very powerful attack against Bitcoin. And I I think that's one of the things we need to be concerned about, which is unless we have, unless we build better privacy in the base layer Bitcoin, this becomes a vector of attack. It's something I've been harping on for the last six years. It becomes a vector of attack for another reason, which people don't think about. And that is that we're not dealing with a local jurisdiction. What we're talking about here is the application of universal norms and universal laws, which don't actually exist. So if you take a universal coin, which is Bitcoin, and then you say, you can't use this for illegal practices. Illegal where? Right. Everything's illegal somewhere. The most absurd things are illegal in places you cannot even imagine. As I I did a talk about this recently, and I said, you know, in North Korea, you can only have one of six haircut styles if you're a man. And I'm already illegal in that perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, isn't there? There's this book. I don't think I've ever read it, but I've heard about it called three felonies a day. And this was written a while ago, but it's basically saying that most Americans unwittingly commit three felonies a day. Like, for example, if you have expired prescription medications at home, that's a felony, apparently. (laughs) And that's in the U.S., which has a relatively robust, relatively working system of law. And you can't even imagine. So it's like, well, I'm sorry, we had to ban your account because your coins were tainted because a 13-year-old Saudi girl used them to escape a marriage to a 65-year-old guy. I'm sorry, your coins are tainted because 
a woman use them to get a driver's license in a country mm. where, where they're not allowed or to own property in a country where she should have known she was property and can't, therefore cannot own property. There are absurd laws all around the world, not just absurd, but more importantly, there are immoral laws all around the world that people should break if they have a sense of morality and they should encourage other people to break. You know, I am not averse to breaking the guardianship laws of Saudi Arabia. Having said that, I can never go there again (laughs) or ever, but I'm not averse. I'm morally obliged to break those laws, right? Any person who has a shred of morality is morally obliged to break laws like that or to assist others in breaking laws like that that are fundamentally unjust or immoral. Right. At one point in U.S. history, you know, it was illegal if you knew about a escaped slave that you didn't report to the police or something like that. Exactly. And so the real problem here is that we're dealing with a universal currency. And if you say that we will prevent activities that are illegal or immoral somewhere and you're dealing with a global currency, then everything at some point or another will be tainted. And you're going to have to comply with absurd regulations from places where you don't share their moral values, you don't share their cultural values, and neither should you. And so that's really a fundamental problem. And it's going to become an attack vector. It's going to become an attack vector because more and more countries are trying to use the international frameworks around banking in order to extend their moral and legal precepts to other countries. The U.S. is the prime offender in that case where they try to obtain the coveted universal jurisdiction. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're in another country. If you sell to an American, buy from an American, transact with an American, or even if your banking system just wants to connect to us in order to trade, you have to follow the American regulations. Again, which is absurd. Hey folks, Adam Bielavine here with Paul from Edge for a quick sponsored minute. So, Paul, Edge is a pretty unique mobile app. Among other things, it lets you control your keys with an old-fashioned username and password. How are you guys doing that? So, it's really cool. We actually take a user's credentials, their username and password, and we encrypt the private keys that are created on their device, automatically encrypt them, automatically back them up to the cloud, automatically synchronize them between the different devices that they log into. So, if you switch phones, lose a phone, just simply log in. And what's super unique is it even allows you to set up password recovery of your encrypted data and two-factor at the touch of a button, making it as familiar and easy to secure and back up private keys compared to any other platform for cryptocurrency. So I can actually have a backup, which you guys will hold for me, but which you don't have the password to decrypt and only I do. Absolutely. You got it right on the money, Adam. A big thanks to Paul and Edge for their support of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. To learn more, visit edge.app or search for Edge, that's E-D-G-E, wallet, on either the Android or iOS app stores. So in the early days, even though people weren't being very private about keeping their Bitcoin addresses separated from real-life identities, it didn't really matter for fungibility because there wasn't enough history to really build a complete graph or even a useful picture. And the amounts of money that were being moved at that time also didn't really make, make it worth doing this sort of forensic on things that weren't hugely valuable like Mt. Gox, which as we talked about, is kind of what got this started. In the more modern era, you know, as we've been discussing, uh, things have actually gotten kind of bad. And it's not bad in a way where people are, you know, going to jail or anything crazy is happening like that, but the indications of the direction we're moving in have not been great. And so we all wanted to talk about 
kind of where we see this thing going and how actually, even though right now is probably one of the worst times for Bitcoin privacy, that layer two solutions really do seem to offer a meaningful change to that and perhaps a break in this path that we're currently on. This is one of the benefits that comes from moving to layer two solutions, such as the Lightning Network. What you're doing with a layer two solution is you're doing transactions off chain, which do not need to be broadcast and verified by every node, but only between the participants in the transaction who exchange signed Bitcoin transactions as commitments to each other that can be adjudicated on the base chain, but don't need to be adjudicated on the base chain. And as a result, you can have a lot of transactions happening, perhaps three, four, five orders of magnitude more than on the base chain, all of which occur between parties that have no knowledge as to where the transaction is coming from or where it's going. They simply know the previous and next hop and are not broadcasting these transactions to everyone. Ironically, this creates a situation where the better layer two solutions get, the less visibility we have. So right now you can say, well, how many transactions are happening on the Lightning Network? We don't know. How many nodes are involved on the Lightning Network? We don't know. How many channels are there? We don't know. We know some of them. And the more it grows and the more successful it becomes and the more complex the routing and the connections between nodes, the less we know, the less visibility we have. So that's a massive increase in fungibility. One thing that occurs to me here is that although we think about Bitcoin as you know this bastion of decentralization, in this particular circumstance, it's ironic, but this problem is caused by centralization of the Bitcoin protocol on a common public transparent blockchain. If you didn't have something like that in some ways... Um, you know, you could say that cash dollars are more decentralized than Bitcoin is simply because it does not have this record and therefore is impossible. Half of the problem, half of the problem is the, the centralization on the ledger where everything has to be public and transparent. But the other half of the problem is the centralization of control points in the exchanges and regulated institutions that surround the open decentralized protocol. It wouldn't be a problem if it was just transparent and everybody was tracking, but they couldn't actually do anything about it because they couldn't censor transactions, right? But when it gets to touching a regulated endpoint that also is collecting personally identifiable information about its users and subscribing to these analysis chains, that's where it all comes to head. So both stuff like the Lightning Network and Bitcoin they're both are decentralized. They're just decentralized in different ways. And when we layer the one on top of the other, the two types of decentralization sort out the problems that each has individually. Is that an accurate representation? In some ways, yes. And what's interesting here is that the verification of transactions in the Lightning Network happens on a peer-to-peer basis instead of on a broadcast basis, which massively increases privacy. But I don't think that's enough. And the reason I don't think it's enough is because you still have the underlying risk of the base blockchain, which is why I'm very excited and hopeful about some of the upcoming proposed changes to the base layer protocol that include things like Schnorr signatures, Merkleized abstract syntax trees, taproots, graft roots, and things like that. These things actively improve the privacy of the base layer, but they also allow you to build additional applications and solutions that further enhance the privacy of the base layer. And I think we need both. We need 
more privacy in the second layer and more privacy in the first layer in order to to really really ruin the game for the analysis blacklisting type companies and to really really start changing the balance here because we are reaching a conflict point a universal open borderless currency is inevitably going to come into conflict with bordered surveilled controlled currencies and the infrastructures that support them and so far that conflict has been low level and mostly denial of service but it's going to get worse or it's going to get better and one of the ways we change that dynamic is by implementing stronger privacy and it gets better for you if you are up on the technology and you're knowing how to uh, use lightning network and other privacy enhancing features Yes, but unfortunately, uh, privacy applied only by those who have technical knowledge uh, creates this weird effect where the fact that they're using privacy technologies makes them a target or becomes a red flag. It becomes one of the scoring parameters in the analysis firms. They're like, oh, this looks like a coin join. Banned. I don't care if you're tainted or not. Just the fact that you're using a privacy technology means you're, you're a suspect. And so that's, that becomes a problem, which is one of the really interesting features in upcoming changes to the Bitcoin protocol and is Graftroot. I think it's Graftroot, not Taproot, but I'm not entirely sure, uh, which is basically being able to make any complex script that could be hiding a coin join or a multi-sig or lightning channel or something like that look like a pay-to-public-key transaction so that all transactions look like pay-to-public-key. One of the reasons that was combined and is being proposed as a single set of changes is so that not only you can apply privacy technology, but when you do apply privacy technology, it's invisible. You can't tell. The transaction looks like a straight-up payment from one person to another, hiding the privacy technology, which is a very powerful idea. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine, with music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Editing was performed by Dave, Crystal, and Adam. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.